0: Well, good morning. We're going to open up God's word together this morning, but before that, I would like to to pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. Would you pray with me, Father? We thank you so much for this time that you've given to us, Lord. And as we um, as we open up your word, Lord, would you minister to us? And as we talk about a subject that. Um, For some people know very well, for others may not know so well. Lord, I ask that you would comfort us, you would encourage us and instruct us, and I ask God that you would help me to be clear and accurate. In your name I pray, amen. Well, I don't know if you've looked around, but you see a lot of t-shirts from the teenagers that are, teenagers wearing the same t-shirt, that's because they're wearing their Ignite shirt. Ignite was last week, it went very well. So, that's a conference, our winter conference that we take our our students too, and so if you uh, want to hear more about that, just find one of the students who's wearing one of those shirts and ask them how their experience was at the conference, and they'd love to talk to you about it, wouldn't you, students? Yes, yes, you would. Well, as I've shared with you guys before, I grew up on a ranch—a ranch that my dad and my brother still operate today. That it's about forty miles southwest of here. And to be a ranch kid, or to be a rancher, there are certain skills that you need to develop uh, in order to be successful. There are many. Uh, one, which is pretty basic, is a good sense of direction. I don't know a farmer who doesn't always know where north is. You know, they just always know. And I never developed this sense of direction that well. I get by, I, I get by, but. I am not like these guys who always know where North is, even if they're in a basement standing on their head. Like, I don't know that. This became pretty evident when I was, when I was a young kid and I had the opportunity to go ship cattle with my dad. Uh, in case you don't know, that that term shipping cattle refers to the end of the summer when all the grazing stock are taken off of the, of the grass and they're shipped to uh, the, the feedlots. And it's a big deal. It's a payday. Uh, essentially, for the cowboys, they get a bunch of guys together. you get up early, you go far away, you go to these big pastures, you get together with guys that you don 't usually see, and then the best part after you 're done, you get to be taken out to a hamburger and a soda pop, which was doesn 't get much better than that and so I was about nine or ten, and i had been I, you know had helped dad gather cattle been on a horse around the house, but i 'd never been on a big big roundup for shipping, so I was I was feeling alive and like a man. It's like, yes, this is what life is like. This is awesome. And as we got to this pasture, we unloaded our horses, got the cattle, gathered them into the pens, and everything was going pretty well, except about 20 or 30 head pushed down the fence and escaped into the neighboring pasture. And so we we got the rest of the cattle into the cattle pens, and by that time, the truck started showing up. And so we devised this plan that most of the guys would stay back and start loading the trucks, and then a small number would go back for those 20 or 30 head, because you have to have them on the truck. And hopefully, we'd have them back by the time uh, they, were, they were ready for them on the truck. My dad, being the one in charge, he went, was leading the, the group to go get those cattle, and I wanted to stick with my dad. So I, I had the opportunity not just to go ship cattle, but to go for lost strays and i was excited i had my rope on my saddle didn't know how to use it but i had it there on my saddle and i was ready boy i felt like i was on a on a black ops operation getting those naughty cattle and it was pretty simple just go in the pasture find them and bring them back but this pasture was huge like like over 1500 acres huge big big pasture and i had never been in it before. And so as we got in there, we started fanning out, uh, looking for those cattle, and I started seeing the guys that we came with, they started disappearing over the hills that way and over the hills that way, and we finally realized there was way more pasture than people, and so my dad told me, he says, Nate, we have to split up, we gotta find these cattle, and we gotta get back in time, so just keep riding this direction, and when you find, uh, if you find some strays, just put them together. And no big deal, just start driving them back the way you came, and you'll probably find one of us who's doing the same thing, and it'll be fine. I was like, okay. And so I started riding. We went our separate ways. I soon lost sight of Dad. And I started riding and riding and riding, and I didn't see anything. I didn't see any cattle. I didn't see any strays. I didn't see any people. I didn't see any of the other guys. And I soon realized that I was terribly, terribly lost. I don't know if you've ever been out in these pastures, but hills all look the same after a while. They all look the same. All the draws look the same, especially when you're not used to it. And I became very scared, and I was all of a sudden regretting my decision uh, to come ship cattle that morning. You ever felt like that when you're a kid, when you think you're big enough to do something until at that moment you realize you're not? And then you're like, what was I thinking? You know, like, What was my dad thinking, letting me come on here? I'm not just a kid. I can't do this. My dad was actually very kind. It wasn't his fault. It was just the situation. And so I started getting this worried feeling building up inside me that I couldn't find anybody. I was going to be out there till dark. I'd be coyote bait. You know, all this kind of stuff. I just started getting that, you know, all those ridiculous things that, you, that a little kid would think. And that f- worry turned to fear and then anxiety and, and panic and then frantic. And I just started loping my horse just every direction trying to find somebody. And the more I rode hard and hard, I couldn't find anybody. I became more and more panicked. And so after I kind of collected myself, I decided to do the only thing you can do when you're lost in a big pasture, and that's just to ride across it as best you can until you find some tire tracks, and then follow those tire tracks and hope that those tire tracks lead you to the gate that you came in at. And that's what I did. And I eventually found my dad uh, and, and those guys. Uh, there's more of that story. I ended up getting bucked off my horse, and I'll, I'll save that for another sermon someday. <laughs> But I remember even I remember being so frustrated, one, because I couldn't keep up with the guys, but two, I was so frustrated because I knew where I needed to go. I knew I needed to find my way back to those cattle pens. I just didn't know how to get there. I could see it in my mind. I knew where they were. They were beside the road. They had trucks around them. They were big pipe pens with big overheads. But I didn't know how to get there. It was so frustrating. And that silly... Little story of a scared, chubby little boy is uh, really an introduction to what suffering can be like in the life of a Christian. Uh, no matter who you are, suffering, sorrow, grief, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter your social status, your nationality, your health, your bank account. Everyone at some point, if you live long enough, will experience sorrow, trials, grief At some point, it can take various forms. It can be the death of a loved one, a serious illness, chronic pain, a miscarriage, financial loss, loneliness, infertility, a child with disability, strained relationships either with your family or in your marriage or with your co-workers or with your friends, being slandered and lied about or battling a life-dominating sin. The list could go on and on. You could think of more, I'm sure. And so when we're faced with that situation, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what do we do in those times of trial? How do we respond? And for the Christian, we know the answer. It's simple. It's trust the Lord, depend on him. But when we're in those times of suffering and sorrow, it doesn't seem that easy. It feels really, really hard, and God can seem so distant. And just like I knew where I needed to go, I just couldn't figure out how to get there. Christians, when we're in times of sorrow, we know that we need to trust the Lord, we know that he's our source of comfort, but we just don't always know how to get there. And so in this sermon, I want to shine a light on a path that gets us there, a path that gets a a suffering Christian to the source of comfort, to the Lord himself, and that path is what is called biblical lament. And this is going to be a little different sermon than Dave preaches or even I've preached here before. Uh, a couple years at Ignite, one of the speakers said that he doesn't, he likes to teach and he likes to do lessons and he doesn't really preach sermons. They're Lermans, that's what he called them. I do Lermans. Well, this is, as I put this together, it kind of came out like a Lerman. It's a, it's a hybrid of, of a lesson and a sermon. And In a church this size, at any given Sunday, there, I know that there's someone who is dealing with, with trials and, and sorrow of some sort. And so I hope that this Lerman is an encouragement to you. But before we get started, I do want to say that I, I don't want to position myself as the guru of sorrow. I'm, I'm fairly young. There's a lot that I haven't experienced in life. Uh, I don't want to position myself that way. There's a lot that I'm still learning. But that's the beauty of the scriptures. The scriptures transcends my experience. It transcends your experience. And it speaks with authority to where each of us are at right now. And much of what I'll talk about this morning, I gathered from really from learning from you guys, my church family, and through my own time of sorrow and grief. And then also through just some study. And most of what I learned from reading this really helpful book, uh, by a pastor named Mark Vrogop. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. I would recommend it to you all uh, highly. And so much of this, much of this sermon comes from, comes from as the fruition of reading that book. And what I want to do this morning is take a few minutes to build a theological foundation for lament, and then we'll see, that, see what lament looks like in action in Psalm 13. So we will get to Psalm 13, we're just going to take a few minutes to get there. So first of all, what is lament when we talk about that? It's not really a word that we use in the English vernacular, at least not the word that I use very often. In the scriptures, it often refers to a wailing, a crying out, a beating of the chest, a tearing out of hair and grief and mourning. But these descriptions are a picture of what people did in their historical context. We don't really um, tie sackcloth and heap ashes on our heads and pull out our hair in grief. Although it would give a really spiritual answer to my receding hairline. You can say like, man, you're losing your hair. Well, I'm just really burdened with with things going on. I kind of wish I could say that. I've been pulling my hair out. Mark Vrograb gives a great definition for lament. He says, lament is the honest cry... Of a hurting heart, wrestling with the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Lament is the honest cry of a hurting heart that wrestles with the paradox of pain and also the promise of God's goodness. I, I really love that definition because when we're in a painful providence, that's often what's in the back of our head, even though we don't like to admit it. it's, "God, I, this really, really hurts, and I know you're good, but I don't really understand why this is happening. I don't understand why this, I'm in this situation. That's where lament comes in. Lament is all over the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. If you look at the book of Psalms, out of the 150 Psalms, a third, 52 to be precise, are Psalms of lament. A third of Israel's songbook were in the minor key, so to speak, which is pretty interesting to think about. And even though if you had of a study Bible, you'll look up and see this, these categories at the front of the Book of Psalms, they have Psalms of Praise, Psalms of Lament, it's important to think to remember that lament is not the opposite of praise. It's not the opposite of praise, but rather it's the path to get a weary and and hurting soul to the point of praising God. Often in the scriptures, when you see lament, you see it as either a response to sinful decisions that that person has made, or it's a response to being sinned against, or it's a response to being in a circumstance that they have no control over. You see this when David, David uh, King David is crying out to the Lord in Psalm 51 in repentance for his his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. He's, he's, that's a response to his sinful decision. You see it in Psalm 59 when uh, David is running and being chased by Saul, his father-in-law, who is trying to murder him. And You also see it in places like 1 Samuel 1.6 where Hannah, Samuel's mother, is lamenting and crying out to the Lord because she is unable to have children. And her husband's second wife, it says, was her rival and it, she provoked her and irritated her constantly. She was in a constant state of being tormented by this woman. And so she cries out to the Lord. And so when you look, it's all over. It's in the New Testament. Paul laments his sinful desires in Romans 7. Jesus laments uh, to the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark 14, he says, If it be your will, remove this cup from me. So lament is not a venting in sinful anger. Rather, it's, the, uh, it's these texts reveal that it's people who are hurt by their circumstances and their sin and others. And they're crying out to the Lord for relief. So that's what lament is. So then, why is lament important? Like, why does that? Why do I need this? It's because life can be so wonderful in one moment and then so terrible in the next. The Lord has given us these uh, these bodies. We're made in the image of God to do all these wonderful things. Uh, The students I teach, I see them all the time. They run and they jump and they play and they fight and they wrestle. And uh, if you're like me, a washed-up youth pastor, you think you can do all those things until you play uh, flag football and you hyperextend your elbow and it's really painful forever and ever, that doesn't work out so well. You start to realize that our bodies can, can change really quick. We're, we're created to play music, to paint on a canvas. We can build things, create things with our hands, hold loved ones. We have minds and intellect and emotions that experience the depth of human relationships. So, when those things are disrupted by illness, by injury, by loss, it's a red flag that something is terribly, terribly wrong. And that something, you know this, is, is sin. I'm not saying things you don't know, but remember, we're building a foundation. Sin affects every and stains every area of our lives. So, when, you're in, when a friend betrays you, it's because it's the result of a wicked heart. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 4.10, he says, For Demas, who he thought was a close friend, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Natural disasters are a reflection of the consequence of sin. You see in Genesis 3 that the Lord cursed the ground. Romans 8 talks about creation groaning. And when we think about the consequences of sin, it should make us think of Christ who suffered for us on the cross. And if Christ, our Savior, suffered and died and bought us with his blood and we are in his family and his children and we have his identity, then we shouldn't be surprised when we are to suffer as well. He, he, it says this, Paul says this actually, it proves that you are a child in Romans eight seventeen. He says, and if children, then heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we, those heirs of Christ, suffer in order that we may also glorify him. So, because we know that we will experience trials to some degree, it's important that we train ourselves how to respond properly when those times come. So then, to lament is not uh, is not sinful complaining; rather, it's an expression of emotion, and it's rooted in biblical theology. To lament means you have a, a grasp of a high view of God and a high view of His Word. You see, everyone cries. Everyone experiences sorrow, but to lament is uniquely Christian. It's a unique thing that is specific only to those who love Christ, who fear the Lord. Okay, so how is lament done now that we have our foundation? That's where we get to our text this morning, Psalm 13. You can go ahead and turn there if you haven't done so already. Usually, and what's really interesting, if you look at the Psalms, there's a pattern that we can see in the scriptures when it comes to lament. This pattern is best found in what we're going to talk about, Psalms like Psalm 13. And really, there's there's four steps that, that are taken in order to move us from grief and sorrow and pain and suffering to praising the Lord. And that is we turn to God, we bring our concerns to Him, we boldly ask for help and for mercy, And we choose to trust. I'm going to read this psalm in its entirety and then we'll start going through it and see if you can pick out those four steps in this psalm. This is a psalm of David. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice and in your salvation I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So first we see that in the process of moving from pain to praise is we turn to the Lord and that's really just an observation of what David is doing in verses one and two to turn to God is having a resolve to go to the Lord in prayer here David makes this really raw and honest statement how long O Lord will you forget me forever that doesn't even seem right but that's what David says It's not the only place. He says it in Psalm 22, Psalm 55. If you flip back to the left, Psalm 10, he says it. It's all over the place. And given the nature of David's plea and how it's this this continual how long, how long, how long, it's probably an indication he's been suffering for a very, very long time. And sometimes when we have trials, it's this instant hard thing, boom, right away. And other times it's the slow drip, drip Of this painful circumstance that just keeps poking and poking. And you wake up and it's just there every day. I think that's where David is at. And there's a temptation that we can find ourselves in when we're in these painful circumstances. And that is we can either uh, give in to bitterness and spite and anger. Or we can hold hold it in and pretend that nothing is wrong hoping that we can outlast the pain that is in our soul. And really, both of these are looking inward. They're self-focused and they're dangerous. But what does David do in contrast? He brings his concerns, he brings his pain to the Lord. I know this is a simple principle, but honestly, I don't think we do this very well as a whole. I know for myself, for the longest time, I didn't think I could go to the Lord if I didn't feel grateful or thankful Or I wasn't in this place of feeling blessed where I could just sing praises to the Lord. I didn't think I could go, if I had these dark feelings and these dark thoughts, that was something bad and I couldn't talk to the Lord about it. So I had to figure out how to deal with it myself and then go to the Lord. The problem is is that that doesn't, you don't deal with it yourself. But what we see here is that actually what David is doing is that it's okay to bring those dark feelings, those dark thoughts, those thoughts of grief, of despair, to the Lord. Often we feel like there's this need to be positive and encouraging. Caleb, is that even a thing still? I think it's a thing. Did I offend you? Caleb annoys me. But there's good things on it, it's okay. There's good things on it, but... It's like Chris from Adventures in Odyssey, the little lady that comes on hey, this is Chris. Welcome to Adventures in Odyssey. It's like, whoa, easy gal. A little too positive and encouraging. Whoa. <laughs> that's how I feel about K-love. But there's a tendency that we feel like that we that's not bad to be positive and encouraging, but we can put ourselves in that box to where we, we have to look that way all the time even if we're not. And even to the Lord. And so what happens when we suppress those feelings and that pain, it, causes, it allows it to fester in our hearts. And all of a sudden it starts to affect other areas of our life. It starts to affect our attitude, our actions, and our outlook on life. And so whatever David has been experiencing, he's seeking relief from the Lord and it hasn't come yet. The pain that was present yesterday is what plagues his mind today and it's what's on the docket for tomorrow. And so David cries out four times, how long? He says, he says, how long must I take counsel in my own soul? It's interesting if you look that phrase up in different translations. The CSB says, how long must I store up anxious concerns? The NIV says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? The NASB says, how long must I feel anxious within my soul? And what's happening here is that David has been left alone with his own thoughts and he hasn't been going to the Lord and he can't think straight. Have you ever felt that way? You ever felt so confused and burdened by things going on that you can't really think straight, and everything's swirling around in your head, and you can't what you're thinking right now, you're not sure if that came from you or someone else, or is that just reality? It gets confusing. And so this sorrow is building and building on David. And the result is what he says is what he says in verse 2, that he has sorrow in his heart all the day. All day, he has sorrow in his heart. However, David has not totally isolated himself from the Lord, thank goodness, because he's, remember, talking to the Lord about this. And he doesn't stop there. He then moves on, and he brings his concerns to the Lord. He says, How long, O Lord, shall my enemy be exalted over me? Again, this may seem uncomfortable, but this is the pattern that we see over and over again, especially in the Psalms. So, you might be thinking, well, wh- is there a difference between lament and complaining? And there is, especially sinful complaining. There, there, you can't have a positive complaining in the scriptures, but for our purpose, we're going to compare lament and complaining, sinful complaining. Complaining, you see, accuses God. It says, God, what are you thinking? This should not be happening to me. Lament asks questions, like David is doing here. How long, O Lord? Lament pleads with God. Lord, I don't know why this is happening. Complaining is fed with bitterness and pride. It says, I deserve better. This shouldn't be this way. And really what complainers do is they can only see the ideal outcome that comes from their own perspective. That's the only thing that what they think should happen is the only thing that can happen in their life to give them relief. Lament turns to God for the source of comfort. Sinful complaining turns to others as a source of comfort. Either that's people or other things, other things that we create in our own hearts, idols in our own hearts. Jonah 2.8, there's an interesting passage. In Jonah 2.8, he says that those who pay regard to vain idols, those who are worshiping other gods, who are placing other things before the Lord, they forsake their hope. People who are worshiping idols don't have any hope. So ultimately, what is at the heart of sinful complaint is an authority problem. That's what it is. Brothers and sisters, we can never learn to trust the Lord if we have this demanding spirit. And we think our way is the only way that could be done. So, what are the concerns here in Psalm 13? He says, Will you forget me forever? He's concerned about his relationship with the Lord. He says, How long will I take counsel in my own soul? He has a need for understanding. He tells the Lord about the sorrow that's building and building each day. And he says, How long will my enemies be exalted over him? David is concerned that that the enemies that, w- that want to take out the Lord are trying to take out him, and the walls are closing in on him. So you might be thinking to yourself, if I bring my complaint to the Lord, what if I say something bad and I do sin? Like, what if I open Pandora's box and it just, like, blah, it all comes out? Well, I would I'd just speak from my own experience. I'd say be thoughtful, but don't be afraid. Bring to the Lord what's on your heart, because the Lord already knows what's on your heart. And speaking for myself, I often have sinful desires that are camouflaged as uh, uh, you know, righteous suffering. And when I voice them to the Lord, I start to see the real colors of those sinful desires. And I can quickly turn to the Lord and repent and ask for forgiveness. So then how should we bring our concerns to the Lord? Well, look, look how what David is doing. He is coming as a humble person. He's not accusing God. He's coming in this posture of humility. He's not demanding, but he's pleading. He's being honest with the Lord. He's actually saying what's on his heart. He's not trying to dress it up in churchy language. Friends, disingenuous and generic prayers go nowhere, and they help no one. You can use Scripture as your guide. Maybe you want to be honest, but you don't know how to put words with what you're feeling. The Psalms of Lament are wonderful for that. But don't just bring your concerns to the Lord and leave it there. You have to keep moving. The key to this is that these, these tire tracks in the pasture, so you will, is you have to keep going until you get to your destination. And so this pushes David to the next portion where he's asking boldly for help and for grace. Look at verse 3 and 4. He says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, "I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken." It almost seems arrogant what David is saying, because he's, he's not, he's not uh, hesitating. He's coming to the Lord and just boldly asking, "This is what I need, Lord." And what David is doing is really what we know to be true from the book of Hebrews. And just real quick, I'll, I'll read Hebrews four 4:16 talking about Christ who is our high priest. He says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time time of need. What's interesting about that text is the way it's written, uh, that mercy and grace that we receive, it's said in such a way to where it's always there. It doesn't end. It doesn't have a past or a beginning. It's always there. The Lord is always there, ready to give grace and mercy in the time of need. That's what David is doing. That's what he's doing. So as Christians living in the new covenant, we should have all the more reason to rejoice before the Lord because the barriers have been torn down by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ as our meteor, we have direct access to the Father for continual grace and mercy. What is... What is Dave boldly asking for? He's asking the Lord to consider and answer him. It means to look intently, to regard with favor or care. David is ac- asking God to take action. He says, Lord, it feels like you're far away. Show yourself to me. He's asking him to enlighten his eyes. It's the same word that's used to Jonathan when he takes his spear and dips it in honey and, and licks it. He says his eyes brightened because he was, he was energized and restored. And David's enemies are crowding around him and David is asking for energy and for essentially mercy or else he's going to die. David's enemies, I said, seem to be closing in and most likely, we don't know, but this is probably either when he's on the run from Saul or from Absalom, both men whom should have been family and friends and loved ones. And one of life's most stinging pains, often we think it's losing someone to death or illness, but often some of the most stinging pains in life, it can come from someone who's still alive. The betrayal of a friend. Paul speaks of this in Demas, Jesus, and Judas. To have an enemy is painful. To lose a, a friend is painful, but to be betrayed by a friend is just agonizing. That's the pain that David is in. But when we turn to the Lord, when we, when we tell him our concerns, and when we bring, boldly ask, we are reaffirming our trust and our dependence in the Lord. We are realizing our need. And so this is setting David up for the final step in that he's choosing to trust the Lord. He's choosing to trust the Lord. Look at verse 5 and 6. He says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now we get to the crux of the issue. There is this crucial pivot point that needs to happen when we're taking our concerns to the Lord. And you see it here with David. He makes a decisive decision, a choice. And what is motivating this decision, this choice with David? It's because he knows who God is of his character and what he has done. David does not just bring his raw complaints to the Lord and then just leave it there, but he fixes his eyes firmly on the Lord. He stands on that firm foundation of the Lord and what he has done for him, of his steadfast love and his salvation. David looks back and he remembers the loyal love, the loving kindness of the Lord. That word there is is hesed, and I know you've you've heard that before from Pastor Dave when we went through Ruth. Hesed is this loyal love. There's actually no one word-for-word translation because it's so big, it's so expansive. It takes many words to describe it. It's often referred to loyal love, loving kindness, covenantal love. The Lord describes himself this way in Exodus 34, 6. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jeremiah, as he's lamenting the fall of Jerusalem, seeing the the walls and the temple being torn down around him, says, The steadfast love, the hesed of the Lord, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That's the verse that song is based on. It comes from a lament, actually. One commentator said the entire history of Yahweh's covenantal relationship with Israel is summarized in that term, hesed. So this is who David knows God to be, and he has experienced it. He has experienced the Lord's salvation time and time again. He knows his history. He has seen what God has done to his fathers and those before him. Brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ, you are experiencing right now the hesed love of the Father, of the Lord. You are currently living in a state of blessedness. You are blessed despite your circumstances. And up until this point, David has only been looking from his perspective. But you see this change, this key change in the song, so to speak. And now he starts lo- stops looking from his perspective and he changes and starts seeing things from the way God views what's going on. And despite all that's been happening... And may happen still David will not forget what he knows to be true about God's character he will rejoice he says in his salvation he makes a choice and so he sings and David finds his song of joy in verse 6 he says i will sing to the lord because he has dealt bountifully with me David's prayer is actually answered but the answer is the is god himself Verse 6 is the result of David being honest with God, remembering who God is and what he has done. His circumstances, remember, have not changed yet at all. But he knows that even though God feels like he's far away, he will not abandon him. That God has been faithful to bring his children through pain before and he will do so again. And that the Lord never loses any child to a trial ever. One pastor says, When we see the character of God, we see from his long-term perspective and not our short-term suffering. So remembering the Lord and his loyal, loving kindness is key. He never breaks his loyalty. He He never wastes your pain. He never leaves his people. He never loses anyone. That is the God we worship. That is the God that we serve. That is the God that brings us from pain to praise. In rather short order, actually. It's incredible. There's one final passage I, I'd call your attention to. It's Second Corinthians 3.18. It has, it's, it's a very interesting text. Paul writes about the Christian life. And when we think about this text in light of suffering, I think it's very helpful. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He's, he's talking about those who have been saved by Christ and what, the, what life is like for them after coming to salvation. He says, and we, talking about believers, we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So when we are saved Christian, we are in that process of being molded and being shaped into not your best life now, not the best version of you, but actually the image of Christ. My kids uh, often get growth pains. I don't know if you've ever had those. I never had them growing up. But my two children, my two oldest, are pretty tall for their age. And so when they get growth pains, it's pretty severe because they're, like, going through different sizes by the month, it seems like. And when it first happened, I really didn't feel that sorry for them because I didn't know what it was, and it always happened at night, and I thought they were just trying to make excuses to stay awake. But my wife explained it to me, and after that, I started finding ways to minister to my kids. And really, this this realization kind of happened to me when I was in a pretty severe state of grief myself. Um... This verse was on my mind and then my kids came to me and this picture just kind, of, just kind of came forth of what this looks like when we go to the Lord with our lament. See, when my kids are experiencing growth pains, it's really painful. And it hurts. And they don't know why, but it hurts really bad. Especially in their shins and their knees. And so they would often come to me at night and they would, they would come and they would tell me. They'd say, Dad, my legs hurt so bad. Often they'd be crying not Titus, I won't embarrass him, but he was crying a little bit. They'd be crying. They'd tell me that their, their, their legs are hurting so bad. And they come to me and they tell me what's hurting them. And, and I want to know what's hurting my children. I want to help them. I want to hear what they're thinking, what they're feeling. And so I, I put them on my lap and I check them out. I usually try and do some sort of like Mr. Miyagi trick from the karate kid to distract him or something, and that doesn't work. But then I start to tell them, and, and really this, this started happening when I was in this time of grief, and it kind of helped me minister to my kids in a new way. When this happens, I tell them that this pain really hurts right now. But it's a sign that they're, just, that they're growing up. That's what this pain is revealing, that they're maturing And it really hurts right now, but eventually it will give way to stronger bones and a stronger body they will be able to do all these awesome things. And if they can trust me that I know what's best, that they're not dying, they'll put their trust in me, and I can comfort them and reassure them. And my hope is that someday that trust is transferred to the Lord. That is what a picture of when we're bringing our sinful, or not sinful, our our laments to the Lord. That is a picture of what the Lord does in our life. That's how we can understand passages like James one, two, and three. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. How does that work? It's because we're seeing things from not our perspective anymore. We're seeing things from God's perspective, from His purpose. But how do you get yourself there? You don't just start by often by just well, I trust the Lord. Often it's a process. You don't cover up your suffering, but you go to the Lord and lament, which involves turning to him, telling him your concerns, boldly asking for mercy and for help, and then choosing to trust based on who he is and what he's done despite your circumstances. And the result is a confident hope, joy. That's what bridges the gap between the paradox of pain and the promise of God's goodness. Those are the tire tracks that lead us back to where we know we need to go, even when life is hard and things, life is hurting and we're not thinking straight. So the only way to have this peace, the only way to be able to know what's going on, remember I said to lament is uniquely Christian. If you've not experienced the forgiveness of Christ, if you've not surrendered and bowed your knee to the Lord, then you are hopeless. There is no hope for you in this world. But the hope is waiting for you at, at the gospel by surrendering to the Lord, asking for forgiveness, and then you have a loving, wonderful Father who hears your concerns, who strengthens you and matures you. So maybe you're scared. I don't know everyone in this room, but maybe you've been suffering for quite a while and you've kind of become used to the sorrow in your life. And to get rid of it feel would feel... Like, almost like you don't have that comfort of that pain anymore. And maybe you're a little scared to try this because you're not sure what will happen. Or you're scared that the Lord won't actually help you. You're doubting to trust the Lord. I would just read you one final text and just kind of challenge you to think on this and, and meditate on this. Ephesians three fourteen through 21 for this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you and be, to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all full, the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more, far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and to Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word, Lord. God, we are... We admit, God, that at times we don't respond well to hard circumstances. We don't think like we should. We can drown in self-pity and sorrow. We can try to numb the pain any way we can so that we don't have to think about it. Lord, would you not let that happen in our hearts when we have times of sorrow, times of grief, times of trial, even small things that just don't seem to go away. Would you, Lord, work in our hearts and remind us of your Hesed love, remind us of your covenantal faithfulness that you do not turn your children away, that there is always grace and mercy to be had to those who come boldly before the throne of grace. I ask, God, that you would work in our hearts to turn to you, to bring our concerns to you, to boldly ask for help and for grace. And then, Lord, would you give us Would you give us the strength to actually act on those things and choose to trust you despite our circumstances? And Lord, we trust that when that happens, we will experience a a fullness and a a love for you that we've never experienced before. We pray that you would work in our hearts today, Lord, in your name I pray, amen.